Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man changed the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows. 15 seconds. Guidance is internal. 10, 9, ignition sequence start. Space nuts. 5, 4, 3, 2, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 5, 4, 3, 2, 1. Space nuts. Astronauts report it feels good. And welcome once again to Space Nuts with Andrew Dunkley and from the Australian Astronomical Observatory, Fred Watson. G'day, Fred. <laughs> G'day, Andrew. Good to be a nut again with yes. you. Yes, <laughs> it's always fun. Uh, today, we've got uh, some uh, more fascinating things to talk about. I use that word too many times, but it, it, it is really a, an, an amazing world, astronomy, whether you're looking at things on the Earth or way beyond or somewhere in between. Uh, and today we're going to take another look at the crater from the asteroid that uh, wiped out the dinosaurs, although we recently learned that they were on their way out anyway. This just sped up the process. But they've been doing some drilling into that p uh, particular crater, and uh, now I think they've picked up some samples. So we'll, uh, we'll talk about that. Uh, we'll talk about uh, how they've come up with... Um, uh, well, well th there's another step being made in um, the development of just got to love the naming of these things, the Extremely Large Telescope. And uh, astronomers are going to be getting together to talk about space junk, which uh, is becoming um, an ever-evolving problem as it um, revolves around the Earth. Uh, but first, Fred, let's go to the, uh, the dinosaur crater off the coast of Mexico. This is the giant crater that was created by an asteroid impact that had uh, just a... Uh, an overwhelming effect on the planet and ultimately uh, saw the demise of the dinosaurs. They've been um, drilling off there with what looks like an oil rig type platform uh, into the splash point in the middle where, where, the, where the, the, the earth basically bounced back up after the asteroid hit. Um, exactly. That's right. You've uh, put it uh, very well there. That's exactly what the what is being uh, drilled into. Um, uh, it's uh, a, a process that's taken about seven weeks, and it's um, uh, been done by um, a UK, US uh, team. Uh, what they have done is hired a drilling vessel, uh, uh, which itself is curious. It's, it looks like a ship when it's on the on the water, but then um, it, it sprouts legs uh, and starts drilling holes in the in the seabed. And um, the thing I like best about it is it's called myrtle. Yes. Uh, <laughs> so, <laughs> um, so myrtle has um, has been sitting in the Gulf of Mexico for the last seven weeks, uh, drilling down into the seafloor uh, underneath it, because that is where. Uh, what's called the peak ring is thought to be. And the peak ring is exactly, as you said, it's where the Earth's crust bounced up after being hit by this uh, asteroid only less than 20 kilometres across, probably nearer 10 kilometres across, hit the Earth at maybe 30 or 40,000, sorry, maybe 30 or 40 kilometres per second. And um, the resulting collision... Um, uh, is thought to have 
uh, wiped out the dinosaurs uh, eventually, as you said, uh, mm. probably after a period of, I don't know, maybe 100 years or so. It was very rapid compared with most geological phenomena. Uh, so that took place 65 million years ago, uh, and the site of the asteroid has been fairly well established as being uh, underneath the Yucatan Peninsula uh, in the Gulf of Mexico. Uh, so that is where this drilling rig has uh, been taking place. It's uh, rather more off uh, offshore, uh, which is, uh, I think it's fairly shallow, the, the, the sea bed there, but the drill has gone down much, much deeper. Uh, it has gone down something like 1,300 metres uh, into the Earth's crust. And the reason why this story is now in the news is that we're, we've started to see images, at least, of the, of the, of the core samples that are coming back. So um, why are people interested in drilling into this peak ring? Uh, well, that's the, uh, you know, it's, it's ground zero for the asteroid impact. So it's a place where uh, the Earth took the full thrust of the, of the collision. Um, we, we think when the, when the uh, asteroid impacted, it excavated a crater which was 30 kilometers deep and 100 kilometres across, so a huge scar in the Earth's surface. Um, but with this rebound uh, after, um, after the impact, producing a kind of inner ring in the crater, and that uh, is basically um, what is being investigated. The, yeah, and, uh, and they, um, they, they, they've brought up samples, as you said, and it looks like they've, they've really uh, been successful in, um, in, in recovering those samples because uh, it's, a, it's a bit of a hit-and-miss affair, but they seem to have um, got back everything that they were trying to get. Yeah, that's right. Of course, this whole area has been investigated very thoroughly with seismic measurements and things of that sort, you know, as well as space uh, sensing, just to determine exactly where the, the right place to drill is. And certainly the scientists involved seem very confident that they've hit pay dirt with this. So what, um, what questions will be answered by looking at these, uh, these core samples include uh, things like the, you know, the energy that was uh, involved in making this uh, crater, um, how uh, much material was dispersed into the atmosphere, what that did to the Earth's average surface temperature. Um, you know, all these are things that play into our understanding of how the dinosaurs met their end. Uh, but also um, the, the um, question of, you know, what happened actually in the, in the uh, area around where the impact took place? Did, did life uh, take hold again there very quickly? So mm. there may be microorganisms um, that, um, that, that are actually within those rock samples or, or fossilised remains of microorganisms that will give us an idea of, of what happened in the immediate aftermath of this collision. So pretty fantastic stuff, really, uh, in terms of what we might learn about the, the event that uh, gave rise to the, the death of the dinosaurs. So um, I think over the next, probably the next few years, we'll start seeing results coming out on this that that really suggest, uh, that really put the detail on this event that we've known about, you know, for 20 years, more than 20 years. It was actually colleagues of mine who were uh, involved with, with postulating that this happened back in the uh, very late 1970s. So uh, very, very much um, a, a, a picture that we've 
only had the broad brush uh, ideas of, but this will uh, hopefully put the details on it. Yes, they have the samples now. It's a matter of uh, analysing them to see what they're going to reveal, and, and that's where we have to play the waiting game. There are no answers yet. No answers yet, but answers coming, no doubt. Yes, for sure. I mean, you've got the raw materials. You, you're definitely going to find something. Yeah, that's right. Mm. You're listening to Space Nuts. I'm Andrew Dunkley, and with me from the Australian Astronomical Observatory is Fred Watson. Space Nuts. Now, Fred, something that I often joke with you about is the naming of astronomical equipment or spaceships or objects in space. Uh, astronomers have this incredible capacity to basically simplify things uh, <laughs> and then not sometimes. But in this case, we're looking at uh, the European extremely large telescope or ELT for short or EELT as some of them are calling it. Uh, what What's uh, great about this is that it's one step closer. This is a project that's um, now been signed off. They're ready to go. Uh, it won't happen tomorrow, but it's, uh, it's definitely going to be happening in the next ooh, eight years or so. Uh, that's right, yes. So first light scheduled for 2024. Now, now uh, this... I'll stop you right there. Explain first light, because I've, I've heard the term a few times and um, it sounds like some sort of social club. But uh, <laughs> what does it actually mean? Um, well, it probably does turn into a social club. So if you build something like um, um, a, a telescope, um, we build instruments at the Australian Astronomical Observatory. We build instruments for other observatories, and we use the term as well. So you build a machine that is going to analyze the light from distant stars, whether it's a telescope or a, a, a complex optical instrument. <clears throat> the first time that you put it on the sky and test it out with real light from uh, the depths of the universe is called first light. Okay. So that's, the, that's where the, the term comes from. First light is when the telescope, uh, first light in this context is when the telescope will be switched on. And as I said, it's expected to be in 2024. Uh, however, this story is much older than that. Um, the, uh, the era, I guess, that we were in in the 1990s is often called the VLT era, the Very Large Telescope era, because the... Uh, I'm the, shaking my head. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> It's actually, it's a, seems to be a very European thing. The, the Europeans run, well, there is an outfit called the European Southern Observatory, which features very large in this story because it's their, it's their telescope. Uh, ESO, the European Southern Observatory, was founded in the 1960s. It runs telescopes in Chile. And in the 1990s, they built what was then the world's largest telescope. And it's four separate telescopes, each with an 8.2-metre diameter mirror, uh, and they are in Chile uh, at a place called Cerro Paranal. I was visiting there last year, so right. um, these places are really quite awesome. Um, that the VLT, as it was then, uh, four independent telescopes that could be combined together to replicate a 16-metre telescope, although in the event they're usually used separately. But the Europeans, um, yes, they called it the VLT. You'd think the biggest telescope in the world built by the Europeans would be called Il Telescopio Grande Galileo or something, you know, <laughs> yeah, something well, like that. Well, that's better. A bit more, yeah, but it's not. It's the VLT. <laughs> the VLT. The anyway. Um, it sounds that... like something you'd have for lunch. <laughs> yes, it does. That's right, with a spike through it. Um, <laughs> that, um, that terminology has kind of extended now into the 2000s. Um, there were several meetings, and I was at one of them, actually, in, 
it was in Sweden, uh, in the early 1990s, several meetings that proposed a new generation of much larger telescopes, uh, which were dubbed at that time ELTs, because one of them was called the ELT. ELTs, extremely large telescopes. Uh, and ELTs, uh, by definition, have mirrors bigger than 20 meters across, or um, can uh, simulate mirrors bigger than that, by or synthesize mirrors bigger than that, by having uh, either, um, uh, as in one of them, something called the GMT, the Giant Magellan Telescope, that will have seven circular mirrors in a kind of flower petal arrangement. Each of the circular mirrors is 8.4 metres in diameter. That one actually is already well on the way because some of the mirrors exist. And I'm glad to say that that one, the GMT, the Giant Magellan Telescope, is one that we in, in Australia are heavily involved with. So... That's the one to watch from our perspective. Mm. Uh, the, uh, there is another one called the TMT, the 30-metre telescope, uh, which is being built by a large consortium led by Caltech and the University of California. That will be in Hawaii. The GMT will be down in Chile. But the one we're talking about today will be the biggest of, of them all. Um, and it will have a mirror made of hexagonal segments, which are sort of butted together to form a continuous surface. And with computer controlled actuators, just making sure that these things form uh, a proper optical surface. That technology has already been developed. Actually, the Keck telescopes in Hawaii pioneered that telescope, that technology in the late 1990s, early 2000s. So we know it can be done. And really, with the EELT, the European Extremely Large Telescope, it's just a question of extending uh, from a 10-meter diameter one, which exists already, out to uh, a segmented mirror of 39 meters across. Gee, that's huge. It's, it is enormous. It is just um, staggering in its size. In fact, uh, it, they've come down a little bit because um, back in 2000, uh, the Europeans were proposing uh, a telescope which would be called OWL. Uh, OWL because it had a very uh, clear eyesight but, but it was also an acronym uh, for overwhelmingly large. Uh, the, the overwhelmingly large telescope was going to have a mirror 100 metres in diameter, again with segments. Um, they, the Europeans uh, proposing this, and I know them quite well because uh, some of these people I've, I've actually worked with, um, they eventually realised that this was just galloping megalomania because an overwhelmingly large telescope also has an overwhelmingly large price tag. Yes. And so they reduced their scope and it is now 39 metres. It is called the EELT, the European Extremely Large Telescope. And the contract for the structure and the dome for this have been have now been signed and that's why it's in the news this is definitely going to go ahead it will be built uh, in a place called Cerro Amazones uh, and, and in fact um, the, the the top of that mountain has already been flattened oh that's it's right they chopped been... the top off it didn't they? yeah, yeah. Um, and it, in fact it's very obvious uh, when I was at Cerro Paranal last year uh, you can look over the valley and you can see Cerro Amazones and it clearly has a very flat top that's been uh, levelled. And when this dome goes on it, this dome is absolutely huge. Um, something like uh, 60 metres 
high, uh, very fat uh, squat dome that will uh, house the telescope. That will be seen, it will be visible for, for, for many, many kilometres around, tens of kilometres around. It will be quite dramatic, I'm sure. And I'm guessing that they, they put telescopes in this part of the world because there's better clarity? Um, is yeah. The air is better? That's right. So this is in the... Um, Except when the... Uh, volcanoes are going off in the region. <laughs> well, that, it is an earthquake region because mm. this is in the uh, it's in the northern Andes in Chile. It's actually uh, really on the on the um, uh, fringes of the Atacama Desert, uh, and that's the other reason. So, what you need for very um, stable atmospheric conditions is a mountaintop more than about three and a half thousand meters. Although I think this one is a little bit less than that, but it's the right sort of height. Um, on the eastern seaboard of a continent, uh, because what that does, I beg your pardon, not the eastern seaboard, the western seaboard of a continent or the eastern landboard of an ocean, you could put it the other way around, because that gives you the very best uh, observing conditions. We've discovered that um, in the last 20 years by lots and lots of um, climatic investigations that have tested the best observing sites for big telescopes. So it is going in the right place. Northern Chile, uh, a place where the, where the sky is clear, there's virtually no water vapour in the atmosphere, uh, it's very dry, and you've also got these very stable conditions. So it will do its job, it will do um, a fantastic uh, job in letting us explore the universe with a tool that really is uh, almost unimaginable by today's standards with this 39 meter diameter mirror. Uh, they will use something called adaptive optics, uh, Andrew, which is um, a, a way of taking what is already a stable atmosphere and making it even more stable because there's still little ripples of air currents and things in the atmosphere. You can take those out by firing lasers up into the high atmosphere. Um, if you use the right kind of laser, you can excite sodium atoms at about 90 kilometers above the Earth's surface to fluoresce and those sodium atoms form artificial stars that you can kind of lock onto and then work out what's happened to the light coming down from them through the atmosphere and correct for that to get very very clear images uh, of the distant universe. Wow, is it too early to ask what this telescope's function is going to be? What, is there anything specific they're aiming to look at? Uh, indeed there, there is. Um, uh, 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 more, than, uh, more than a decade ago um, uh, I was reading the science justification document for this telescope. So its, its future uh, has been mapped out fairly clearly. Uh, the kinds of questions that we would like to answer with a telescope like this uh, have been very, you know, they've been analysed to death really to make sure that, that it's going to work. And it includes things like the very first generation of stars. You, when you look far into the universe, you're also looking far back in time because light takes um, a finite time to travel from these objects. So um, the hope is that we will see the first stars switching on after the origin of the universe. Um, perhaps more uh, close to home and, and in some ways more exciting is the fact that this telescope will be able to see the planets that we already know exist in orbit around neighbouring stars of the suns but see them in enough detail that we might be able to analyse their atmospheres maybe detect signs of life on those planets. Wow, clouds. that would be exciting. So that's not far away. It's not far away, no, and I hope you and I will be talking about it when oh, it all comes along. Me too. Uh, <laughs> yeah. Of course, I'm waiting for them to build the beat. 
the B E E T, the bloody enormous European <laughs> telescope. <laughs> That's right. Mm. The B, yes. Well, um, I remember where you heard it first. <laughs> <laughs> Tell your friends. Uh, you're listening to Space Nuts. Andrew Dunkley here with Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory. Three, two, one. Space Nuts. Finally, Fred, uh, we're going to talk about something that was really well portrayed in the recent movie Gravity, where uh, astronauts got caught in a, an avalanche of space junk, basically, that was orbiting the planet at high speed. And you and I discussed the movie to talk about its reality, and we basically wrote it off because there's no way anyone could have survived that kind of uh, catastrophic event in space. However, <laughs> space junk... Space mess, space debris, whatever you want to call it, is a reality and it is a problem. Uh, indeed, that's right. And so um, uh, a week or so ago, there was a conference in Canberra uh, actually hosted by the Space Environment Research Centre, which is um, a CRC, a, a collaborative research centre, cooperative research centre, uh, which was set up at Mount Stromlo to look at exactly this problem, the problem of, of space junk, uh, and what can be done about it? And there are some there are some things that can be done, uh, which are just being explored by uh, scientists at the at the SERC, the Space Environment Research Centre. Just to to give you the the, the, the basic facts, Andrew, um, there is something like thirty thousand pieces of space junk, which are. Um, you know, bigger than the size of a dinner plate, so yeah. or, or, or maybe not even a dinner plate, a tea plate. They're, they're more than about 100 millimetres in diameter or in size. Uh, they are tracked by radar, so people know where they are and what their trajectories are. And um, as a result of that, uh, once in a while, the International Space Station has its orbit changed very slightly uh, if one of these pieces of tracked debris is known to be coming... Um, within, it's probably something like 10 kilometres. It's quite a, a big box around it. But mm. nevertheless, they move the space station out of the way just to make sure that there isn't an accident. Um, that's sort of, you know, reasonably under control. But what isn't controlled are the bits of pieces which are smaller than that. Yes, and, and when than... we're talking things that are minute, really, yeah, aren't we? Some, sometimes down to a couple of millimetres in yeah. size, which can still do damage. Um, there are many recorded instances of windows, uh, once uh, certainly memorably on the space shuttle, and now one on the cupola, which is a, a sort of window area of the um, of the International Space Station. This is little fractures that are out of these windows, which have been caused actually by flecks of paint uh, uh, in, in orbit. And the reason why a fleck of paint can take a, a chunk out of a window is because the collision speeds are so high. Um, uh, in, in, to be in orbit at all, you've got, you've got to be travelling uh, relative to the Earth's surface at almost eight kilometres per second. So if you've got two vehicles which are in an orbit doing that sort of speed but are actually going in opposite directions, you've got a closing speed of 16 kilometres per second. And that is phenomenal. You know, it, it makes bullets look stationary. Yes. So, um, so that is why you can get so much damage done by such a small object. So the estimate um, from uh, Ben Green, who's the director of the Space Environment Research Centre, his estimate is that um, there are something like 170 million bits of space junk that could cause damage. 
Uh, and their, their task is to look at ways that you might be able to deal with that. Now, the small stuff is really very difficult. What, what you've got to do is uh, work out a way of determining the orbits of these things. And radar is, is not really the way to do it because radar is not sensitive enough to these very small objects. So people are now thinking about using lasers to, to first of all, detect uh, small pieces of space junk and then possibly um, to move them out of their orbits, you know, uh, kind of push it along with a tractor beam from your laser to change the orbit of one of these objects. It's really a very, very interesting proposal. Um, one that I think is fraught with potential legal difficulties because if you've got the capability to, to change the orbit of a, uh, an object in space, then you've suddenly got um, the idea that you, know, you could be committing a hostile act because you're, uh, you've got somebody who owns that debris. That's space. the thing, yeah. People yes. own the junk, whether they it's do. junk or not. It's, it's, it's the possession of a nation. Yes, yeah, space, space law says that... Um, uh, whoever puts it into orbit owns it yeah. and is responsible for it. Now, it's actually very difficult to uh, to enforce that, but nevertheless, that's the, the letter of the law as it stands at the moment. Um, so, you know, if, you've, if you're probing around with a laser and moving things into different orbits, and that happens to be uh, some other country's um, communication satellite or reconnaissance satellite or whatever, you, you could start, um, um, you know, a really interesting international diplomatic situation. Uh, it's a very fraught area, which I don't think has properly been addressed yet. All over a fleck of paint. All over a fleck of paint, that's right. Yeah. Okay, well, uh, it is indeed a major problem, and it uh, certainly was the fuel for some pretty amazing... Uh, cinematography for the movie Gravity. But, right, absolutely. <laughs> uh, the reality is it's up there and it's uh, not going away in a hurry. Indeed, that's right. Mm. All right, Fred, lovely to talk to you. Thank you so much. And uh, we will look forward to catching you again next week. That sounds great. Thanks a lot, Andrew. Take that's care. That's Fred Watson from the Australian Astronomical Observatory who joins us every week on Space Nuts. And uh, from me, Andrew Dunkley, goodbye. Thank you for watching. Thank you for listening. And uh, <laughs> don't forget to uh, join us on Facebook. We keep updating Facebook uh, every other day and uh, plenty of information there to keep it going between podcast segments. And don't forget to tell your friends, share our segments uh, in uh, any way or form you can and, uh, and spread the word. And uh, we'll look forward to chatting again next week. Space Nuts. You'll be listening to the Space Nuts podcast. Subscribe to the full podcast on iTunes, Audioboom and Stitcher or your favourite podcast distributor. This has been another quality podcast production from Sites.com. Welcome to Mafia, a new podcast telling stories of America's criminal underworld. Gotti assumed the position of head of the Gambino family. And using the name Donnie Brasco, I was able to infiltrate the uh, Bonanno uh, crime family in New York City. Bugsy Siegel is an American mob legend. One man change the whole texture and landscape of crime in America. Listen to Mafia every Wednesday on Apple Podcasts or wherever you get your favorite shows.